If you follow this podcast as intended, going stop by stop from episode 1 to episode 20, it will take you on an urban expedition, exploring alleys and bars and public art and soul food joints and subterranean corridors connecting government buildings. Two things to note. First, it's just sort of bad luck that I started a podcast dedicated to urban exploration right before a massive public health crisis. Stay home, save lives, listen to this on your treadmill or whatever, and walk the podcast route after the shelter-in-place order is lifted. Second, the route between last week's episode, which dove into the modern political scandals of former governors George Ryan and Rob Lagojevich, and this episode, which tackles gerrymandering, is like 200 feet. You are at the giant red Calder flamingo statue at the south end of Federal Plaza. You're going to be standing next to a row of scraggly maples from a raised garden bed at the north end of the plaza. Not the most exciting jaunt on the tour. You'll be standing at the southwest corner of Adams and Dearborn. If you look east towards the lake, on the next block, you'll see the curly-cued neon sign for the Burkhoff restaurant. Great German food. Fantastic sausages. It's Chicago's oldest restaurant, if you don't count the time in 2006 that the Burkhoff closed, supposedly permanently, and reopened seven weeks later as a new legal entity under the same owners. The only difference was now they were free of the decades-old contract with the Waiters and Cooks Union. When a Chicago Sun-Times reporter asked Carlin Burkhoff about local speculation that the February 28th to April 18th, 2006 closure was actually an effort to bust the Unite Here Local One contract, all Burkhoff would say was, quote, we had to do it the way we did it. A few blocks beyond the restaurant, above the Adams Wabash L station, you'll see the top of the Art Institute of Chicago. It's a world-class art museum. It's a global treasure if you don't count the time in 1892 the planners were only able to build on that particular spot of lakefront because the last remaining neighboring property owner on the injunction stopping construction was a woman. When she wouldn't consent to the project, they got her husband to sign on her behalf that she consented to the project, which was a man's complete and total legal right in 1892. Yes, the Chicago Corruption Walking Tour podcast. We can even make you feel bad about art. The woman's name was Sarah Daggett, and if you want to read more about her and her battle against the Art Institute, I wrote about this case for a previous proto-podcast project, my former blog, 1001 Chicago Afternoons. You can find Mrs. Daggett's story at 1001chicago.com slash 566. That's 1001chicago.com slash 566. Now look west down Adams, the other direction. Crane your head out a bit and you might be able to see the antenna of the Sears, Willis, whatever tower peeking over the northernmost edge of the Clark Adams building. So to review, you're on Federal Plaza. One block to your east is the Burkhoff. Four blocks to your east is the Art Institute of Chicago and four blocks to your west is Sears Tower. You're standing in Illinois Representative District 6, that state representative district, the people we send to Springfield, not D.C. You're in 6. The Burkhoff is in Representative District 5. 
District 26 starts on the other side of the Art Institute, and the Sears Tower is in District 9. From one street corner, you can see four state representative districts. District 5, the one the Burkhoff's in, runs seven miles north to south, and at its thinnest point is two city blocks east to west. There is no reason anything shaped like this should ever exist in nature. It's called gerrymandering, the drawing of political maps for political gain. I should specify the podcast is not living up to its name right now. Gerrymandering is not corruption. Corruption is gaming the system. This is the system. And this has disenfranchised more citizens and has caused more damage to the American experiment than any kickback, bribe, or shady deal you'll find in any other episode of this podcast. Gerrymandering is about how political district maps, congressional districts, state house and state senate districts, city wards, are drawn. It's when politics interferes in the process that creates these maps. It's politicians picking the people they represent. It's how every 10 years we let the voted pick their voters. Gerrymandering is technical and complicated, and yeah, there's math involved. If you want a simpler political narrative, episode one has like several aldermen beating the crap out of each other, Gangs of New York style, and episode four has Rod Blagojevich playing the clown on Ellen and the View. But this nerdy, mathy stuff is where the real damage is done. I posted a quick explainer video on the Chicago Corruption Tour Twitter account, twitter.com slash corruption tour, using dimes, pennies, and my amazing quarantine haircut to explain two of the most common gerrymandering techniques, packing and cracking. That video, twitter.com slash corruption tour, is this episode's bonus material. But to get to the meat of this topic, I am thrilled to have on this episode Ruth Greenwood. We spoke on March 6th of this year by phone about all things gerrymandering, including how it's used, the racial and racist aspects of it, why a weirdly shaped district could actually be more just than a square one, and why the rest of the world thinks Americans are idiots for not fixing this mess. It's a great interview, and you should listen to the whole thing. Ruth is the co-director for voting rights and redistricting for the Campaign Legal Center. She has argued as an attorney before the United States Supreme Court on two separate gerrymandering cases, Woodford v. Gill and LWVNC v. Rucho. She literally had a gerrymandering-themed wedding. She was based out of Chicago for years, but last year moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she is a lecturer at Harvard. She is the real deal, although my video on the Twitter page is actually really super cute and wearing an awesome t-shirt. But from March of this year, I'm very proud to present Ruth Greenwood. All right. Well, anyway, thanks for coming. Um, Chicago Corruption Walking Tour podcast. Thanks for being a guest here. Uh, I guess just to start, who are you and what do you do? So I'm Ruth Greenwood. I'm the co-director of Voting Rights and Redistricting at the Campton Legal Center, um, which is based in DC. Um, I was based in Chicago for seven years, but I recently moved over to the Boston area. Um, I'm teaching a course um, at Harvard on voting rights litigation and advocacy. Um, and yeah, I spend my day doing litigation and advocacy around redistricting. 
Now, you've recently had uh, some sort of high-profile uh, litigation cases, went pretty high up. Could you could you tell talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. Why don't I discuss all of those massive Supreme Court losses I've had? Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, basically over the past five years, I was litigating um, cases under the federal constitution, alleging that first Wisconsin and then the North Carolina um, plans were uh, partisan gerrymanders, Basically, the Supreme Court had been saying since the 80s that partisan gerrymandering was unconstitutional, but had never actually set a test, and so no maps ever got struck down. Um, and so we got the, the Wisconsin state legislative map struck down by a federal court, appealed that up to the Supreme Court, and they said we needed to go back and do some more evidence on standing. So that happened in um, 2018. And then during that time, we also had a case out of North Carolina challenging their congressional plan as a partisan gerrymander using the same test. Um, and that case went up last year. And in June last year, um, we got a decision saying that the Supreme Court decided that partisan gerrymandering was no longer justiciable under the U.S. Constitution. And so all our cases were kicked out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, let's uh, take a step back. First of all, some of our listeners might have noticed that uh, there's a strange accent in this call, <laughs> a, a flat Midwestern accent. Um, and I'm also in that flat Midwestern accent is talking to a woman from Australia. So how did you come here? How did you make American uh, American politics your 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 life's work? Yeah. So I came in 2008 in August. Um, I was coming to study a master's in law in New York at Columbia, thinking I'm going to learn from this amazing educational institution. I wanted to do constitutional law and then go back to Australia and, and try to work in that area. Um, but while I was here, of course, the Obama campaign was happening and I, like most of the world, was enthralled. And so I went and volunteered on the Obama campaign just for the weekend before an, an election day. Um, and I was placed down in Prince William County, Virginia. And I said, look, my accent obviously is not American. If that's a problem, let me know. And they were like, look, why don't you just do voter protection? I was like, what do you mean, <laughs> voter protection? Um, and, and in Prince William County, there were signs up, um, particularly in the black areas of town, telling people that this was going to be a historic election and there would be um, uh, so much turnout that Republicans should vote on Tuesday and Democrats should vote on Wednesday which is just appalling, right? It's just flat out voter <laughs> suppression, um, which I was shocked at. I guess these days I'm like, oh, wow, that's so obvious. There are so many new and different ways I know of to suppress votes. But at the time I was quite shocked. Um, and so I took election law um, and realized that there were lots of problems with American democracy. Um, and I'm still thinking, look, I think I can learn some things here and take it back to my neck of the woods. You know, Australia does a lot of work um, in democratization in the South Pacific, um, and though we have compulsory voting, we still have communities that are really disenfranchised, particularly Indigenous Australians. Um, and so I, I thought, I'll learn in America, and then I'll head back to Australia. Along the way, I met this boy, um, Nick Stephanopoulos, who is now my husband and father of my child. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, so basically when I then I got another job in America, um, uh, working for the DNC doing voting rights, and when that all finished at the end of 2012, uh, because Obama won again, I was like, well, I guess I'll just follow this boy, Nick, to Chicago and see how things go. And then I just, I fell more in love with Nick and I fell in love with Chicago too. So um, here I am all these years later, <laughs> still trying <laughs> to fix American democracy. So one of the things that both brings together your love of Nick and Chicago is uh, your wedding cake. Uh, could you could you tell talk a little about what, what the decoration was on your wedding cake? Yes. 
So um, I wasn't that enthused to have a wedding cake. I'm a bit of an ice cream person myself, but the caterers were like, you get a cake, what do you want to put on it? And I, Nick and I were like, well, let's put our favorite district. It just seemed like an obvious answer. Um, and so the district that we really love is the Illinois 4th, um, which used to elect Luis Gutierrez and now elects um, Chu Garcia to Congress. And the, the sort of joke that we put on there, well, it was a joke for us, was Nick and Ruth. And then we said combining communities of interest, which is a, a term that's used in redistricting litigation. And, and another professor friend of ours had suggested that. Um, the reason that we love the Illinois Fourth, though, uh, is because it, it looks weird, right? It, they, people call it the earmuffs district, and it's like, look at all these crazy lines. Um, but to, to us, it's not a gerrymander, right? It, it isn't just the case you can look at some squiggles on a map and say, therefore, there's a gerrymander. That district was actually instituted by a federal court in the 1990s to make sure that um, Latinos, particularly um, Puerto Ricans, Americans on the northwest side, uh, of Chicago could combine with uh, other Latinos, predominantly Mexican-Americans on the southwest side of Chicago to create a majority Latino district, which could then elect a candidate of choice of the Latino community to Congress. And so we put it on there to be, you know, to be like, look, this is, this is something that's important to us. We think that communities are important. Um, we also had various other redistricting themes to our wedding. All of the tables were districted. Um, uh, the person who actually married us was our joint, pro the professor we both had, um, Nate, personally. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> one aspect of our nerdiness. And, yeah, what I find interesting about that, aside from the the fact you got uh, your cake appeared on uh, last week tonight with John Oliver, which was sort of fun, um, <laughs> but uh, is is Illinois 4 is often, you know, cited as one of the biggest gerrymanders. Uh, for people listening, you can just go to your mobile devices, phones right now, Google it, and it starts in uh, in the north in sort of the, the Humboldt Park area, shoots out, I believe, I want to say 12 miles out to the west, trail, travels down Interstate 290, and then shoots back east to get to the little village area. So uh, I found it interesting that this is sort of one of the most cited examples of a terrible gerrymander. But um, why, I guess, uh, and all my ums and ahs here are definitely going to be edited out. I will sound very sharp in the final yeah. edit. If you, if you want to ask me why it's not, I have, not, I have more to say. That is why it's not. Yes, well, that is my question. Why isn't it? Why isn't it? Right. So as well as what I mentioned about it combining the Latino communities to create a, you know, a district that is enfranchising of a historically discriminated against community, the reason it has that... Um, arc all the way, you know, 12 miles out to the west, is so that it doesn't disturb a historically majority African American district, which includes the west and some of the south side of Chicago, right? So this isn't only a district that's good for its communities, but it's good for the community around it as well. It means we can have um, different communities electing their candidates of choice. Um, so yeah, so it, it is the case that back in 1812, you know, when gerrymandering got its name, um, you could look at a district and be like, that's weird looking, maybe something, you know, some partisan shenanigans are going on. But these days, you don't have to draw something weird for it to be a partisan gerrymander. Um, again, if your listeners want to Google the North Carolina 2016 congressional map, it looks fine, right? It, it's, a, it's a gerrymander hiding in plain sight. They managed to make them look like nice sort of square, circular-ish districts. But the problem is they split up all of these um, cities in order to try to submerge Democrats into majority Republican districts. 
Um, so I guess that's part of it as well. I feel like um, <laughs> one of my one of the other redistricting litigators coined the term the cubists uh, for people who really like square districts because really <laughs> the the only value that you get from a square district is a square district, right? There's, there's like basically no other value. People don't live in squares. Um, if you look at communities, um, there are all sorts of things that, that bind us and divide us, right? Mountain ranges, um, you know, grocery stores, which school districts we're in, um, lakes, roads, highways, everything. Um, and so to me, it's really important to understand that underlying geography and where people really are rather than just, you know, draw up squares. How do you explain to ger gerrymandering to someone who may not have heard the term before or only know it in loose terms? Yeah, I guess you would need someone to at least understand districts. And as um, long as you know that you have a representative, then you just sort of say, look, it's basically manipulating the district lines to get advantage for one side. Now, strictly, you can have other sorts of gerrymandering. So, so getting advantage for one side is for partisan gerrymandering. There's also racial gerrymandering, where you're trying to get an advantage for a particular race or, race or ethnicity. And I presume you could try to do other sorts of gerrymandering, just depending on population distributions. But yeah, it's really just gaining, I guess you could say gaining an unfair advantage, right? Of course, if people really want one particular race, ethnicity, or party, then they should have an advantage. But if they don't want that one, and they get an advantage anyway, um, because of the way they draw lines, that's an unfair advantage. So one uh, issue I know I've had uh, problems with is in terms of racial gerrymandering. Uh, how do you tell the difference between a district that is combining communities of interest, is trying to get more, vo uh, more people of color in Congress or in, in representative government versus ones that are trying to sort of sublimate that race? if that makes sense. No, that's a really good question, and it's something that the Supreme Court, I think, is still grappling with. I mean, from my perspective, it really depends on what you're trying to do with a district, right? So that the cases that most recently have um, come up and been struck down as racial gerrymanders is where the people who were drawing the lines um, were either very explicitly saying, we are trying to put you know, as many people of X race or ethnicity into a district, <laughs> essentially to make sure that they don't have influence anywhere around there, right? So that's obvious. There are also places where they said, well, we're just going to try to cap that number at 60% or 55% or even 50%. And the thing there is more, they're just being lazy, right? They're saying, well, let's just draw this 50% district because we couldn't be bothered to work out what's actually going on on the ground. In order to really enfranchise any community, you need to understand the community dynamics. You, know, you need to know how extreme the level of polarization is in voting. So, so polarization in voting is when one group, let's say white people, like some candidates, and another group, let's say black people, like different candidates. Sometimes that's extreme, right? There's, there's complete split. Other times there's some crossover between them. And depending on how those communities vote is going to um, influence how you should draw districts. So the, the sort of when you say, how can I look at a district and know, first thing is you definitely can't just look at a district and know. Uh, looking at the shape won't tell you anything. And often looking at just the statistics of you know, the de demographics won't tell you either because you need to actually understand a local community. But another good way to think about it is um, imagine if you have you know, black plus Latino plus Asian communities, uh, you need to know how much they coalition and how much they don't and would they coalition in a primary election. You know, it actually involves quite a fact-specific inquiry. And so when, um, what, what sort of work would that entail, I guess? Are we talking about people on the ground? Are we talking about a different system for drawing the maps? Like Dream World, how, do, how are these maps drawn in your mind? 
Okay, so <laughs> dream world is you actually get um, citizens, or not even citizens, people of the state um, to, to be on a commission where they can take interviews of other people around the state. Because you, you can sort of estimate this by getting political scientists to look at voting returns and look through, through that data. Every time I have worked with experts like that, they get essentially the same answer that I would get talking to somebody who works in a community. Because the community knows, right? You're like, oh, you know, is it that white and non-white people prefer different candidates? You know, do you think the black and Latino populations work together or, or don't work together in this area? So part of it is you can, yes, get political scientists, but also just get community members to talk about what their communities are and how they want their districts to be drawn. Um, the California has an independent uh, redistricting commission that held, I think, something like 100 hearings around the state where people just came and talked about what they wanted their districts to be. Then they released a draft and had everyone comment um, you know, on, on that draft, and they, and they made fixes based on that. To me, that, that's what you want to do to try to make sure that people are enfranchised, not just squirrel it away in a back room. Well, speaking of, uh, of places to do it in the back room, uh, uh, can you speak sort of to the specifics of Illinois system or should I just, should we just talk more in general? Yeah, no, I mean, the Illinois system uh, doesn't require too much in the way of public hearings. I know um, in the last round in 2010, there was a lot of, uh, there were groups that tried to make much of the fact that there were a series of public hearings. Um, but how many public hearings were there before they released a plan? You know, dozens. How many after they released a plan? Two. One in Chicago, one in Springfield, and then they ignored everything that everybody said and they voted on the plan anyway. So, you know, if you're going to have public hearings, actually, you know, listen to people and, and take their input. Um, so, yeah, so at the moment there's not a, not a lot of requirement for transparency. Um, and the other thing with Illinois is last time, yeah, they released the plans and very quickly voted on them. So even if they weren't going to have public hearings, you could still Keep, the, keep it open so that people who were interested would be able to make submissions or talk to the media or just do some other way to let, you know, these, these people who are supposed to represent us actually hear our, our view before they vote. Now, uh, a couple of years ago in Illinois, there's a big, I'm sure you're familiar with this, I'm mostly talking straight to the listeners right now, um, there's a big push to get uh, independent boards to 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 draw these maps. I mean, it went up to the Illinois Supreme Court and they tossed it out because it would require making some changes uh, to the role, to certain roles that were beyond what citizen referendums could ask for, et cetera. Um, do you think, I mean, what do you think of independent boards? Is, it, is, it, is, is that going to help things, fix things? Is that just going to push the problem elsewhere? I mean, is it a panacea as ever, as sometimes it's portrayed as? I mean, I think they're pretty good, right? So things like the litigation that I was doing was trying to stop just one problem, partisan gerrymandering. Introducing an independent board that has criteria of trying to involve the community and actually care about racial justice and partisan fairness um, is a really good way to try to get good results. Um, the, I think now we're up to the fourth effort to try to get this in Illinois. So the first time the League of Women Voters tried to gather signatures and, and didn't make it. The second and third times there were signature gathering, I think successful signature gathering efforts that then led to court cases that um, kicked, kicked out the ability to do a, a referendum. And now um, Change Illinois and others are trying to get the governor to approve a bill to place a referendum on the ballot this year. Um, and it basically seems like this would be really popular because if you say to people, you know, should we let politicians sit in the back room and decide on their own futures or do you want to shine some light on that and get some 
um, you know, not self-interested people involved, everybody's like, yeah, good idea. Let's do the voters, not the politicians. Um, anyway, I mean, it, it just would be so, so much better. I'm sure that there are still problems. In fact, I would love to get to the point where we were discussing what were the problems with this independent commission? You know, could we do certain things differently? That would be a lovely conversation to have because we would be so far ahead of where we are now. So is there a difference in topic of gerrymandering? For example, could I walk, I mean, if I walked in and said, hey, here's my map, I drew it to disenfranchise black people. Obviously, that's a big no. But it sounds like I could walk in and just say, hey, I, did, I drew this to disenfranchise Democrats or I drew this to disenfranchise Republicans. I mean, is partisan gerrymandering just permitted? Yeah, so um, under the federal constitution, the answer is basically, sure, go ahead, do a partisan gerrymander. The, the sort of helpful thing is that um, there are two states that have already struck down plans are their state constitutions um, under clauses that require free and fair elections. Um, and there are at least, I think, 33 states that have free and fair elections clauses. So there's a possibility that you could strike down, you know, extreme partisan gerrymanders using state courts. Of course, that depends a little bit on the partisan valence of the state court and, the, and who's drawing the plans. Um, because, you know, this ends up being a bit of an inside job, you know, parties look after themselves. Which states were those? Uh, the two states where they struck down um, plans as partisan gerrymanders are Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Okay. And uh, about how many states have the, the mechanisms within their own state constitutions to you know, prevent partisan gerrymandering? Yeah. So, I mean, 33 states have that free and fair elections clause. It's possible that there are other clauses that could be used in other states. Um, but again, it really depends. If you have you know, very partisan elections for state Supreme Courts, then sometimes it's hard to use them to overturn a partisan gerrymander. Great. All right. So then um, how do you... How do you get people angry about this? Just talking to people, how do you get them to, you know, have an emotional reaction and realize, oh, this is bad? You know, it's actually been a lot easier in recent times. Since we had the cases that went up to the, the um, Supreme Court, um, there have been a lot of um, media sort of around this. So there's a, a new documentary um, that's out called Slay the Dragon and there have been various other sort of TV pieces and pieces on the radio that explain this. The thing that's sort of good is it's not that hard to understand like it's unfair, right? It, even in something like Wisconsin where you had, you know, more than half of the people voted for Democrats back in 2012 and yet you ended up with like over 60% of the legislature was Republican. That straight up counter-majoritarian thing, I feel like resonates with people, right? It just feels wrong no matter what your theory of democracy is. You know, there are places like Illinois where it's a little harder to explain because it's like, sure, 55% of the state's probably voting for Democrats, but the Democrats are getting like 70% of the legislature, um, which is which I think is, you know, too much compared to their vote. Um, that, that's a little bit more confusing because it's not counter-majoritarian. But generally, there are so that's just in terms of partisan gerrymandering. But there are other sort of manipulations of lines that people can understand, like splitting up communities, for example. Yeah, there's a couple uh, examples in Chicago. I believe one the Chicago Reader wrote about a couple of years ago, and I will edit this out if I'm getting it wrong. Like I said, the purpose of editing is to make myself look smart. Uh, where a uh, development, where, where an apartment building was split in half. I mean, it was a complex, and some of the buildings were in one district, some of the buildings were in the other. Oh, that could be the case, uh, yeah. As long as there's different census blocks, you could actually end up with um, yeah, different parts in, in different districts. Brief pause for a citation here. 
It was the Barbara Jean Wright Apartments, a near west side affordable housing complex split between the 25th and 11th wards. Journalist Chloe Riley wrote about the complex for the Chicago Reader on February 20th, 2015. Um, but not, not even that, right? You can end up, I know that I think Logan Square ended up in a whole bunch of different districts. Um, I know even in um, California, when the, the commission there drew their initial draft, they had um, split up um, Koreatown into two different districts. And, and the people from Koreatown were like, look, we get that we can't be a majority minority district, but we at least want to have one you know, legislator to go to rather than be split up. Um, and so that, that kind of thing maybe isn't something that you can bring a legal case over, but it's still a real problem for communities. Hmm. Now, um, so is the sort of atom of this, the census block, are we, are we doing census blocks or can it go to, how, how, how far down can a district go? It actually depends a little bit on the state law, but in most states you can go down to census blocks. Some places try to keep pre precincts together, um, but then other places will divide it up by census block and then draw their you know, voting precincts or wards based on those census blocks. But the sort of confusing thing with census blocks is um, some of them have no people, some of them have one person, but then some of them, like a prison, have like 800 people. <laughs> and so the <laughs> census blocks can be sort of wildly varying um, in, in their size. How, how physically, are they physically the same size always? No, they're not physically the same size either. I don't know what the um, the math is that goes into choosing what a census block is. It's actually kind of interesting if you're a math nerd to go in and, and start looking at census blocks, particularly if you're trying to do something like school redistricting, you know, at a school district level or in very small communities. Um, sometimes there are very large and what appear to be strangely shaped census blocks. And so you can draw something that is really good for a community but looks very weird, which again is why I don't care so much for drawing squares. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, so one thing and uh, that I know is used uh, this way in Illinois and I've heard is used this way in other places is sort of direct, um, <clears throat> using this to directly influence elections. Uh, that, you know, there's cases in Illinois where uh, unpopular aldermen have been drawn out of their wards so they can't live <laughs> yeah. there because of residency requirements and uh, yeah. the Better Government Association in, 19, in 2012 found that 69 of the people who had filed to run an alderman were drawn out of their ward uh, when the new maps were revealed. So I mean how big a problem is this? Is this something you can speak to? Or Yeah, so the, the idea of targeting individuals um, is is a clever one that is, I, I find sometimes a little harder to explain to people. There's a really interesting graphic showing um, Barack Obama's house um, and the redistricting um, after he uh, lost the election to Bobby Rush. They redid the congressional district so that he was drawn out of Bobby Rush's district so he wouldn't be able to challenge him again. Um, that is sort of a, a high-profile election where you can understand what, what they were trying to do there. Um, but in lots of other places, um, if you're talking about you know, 69 people who filed for office, it can just look like we were just drawing some lines as opposed to we were very intentionally carving people in and out of districts. Um, one of the things that you get with um, well, you get with the current set of independent commissions around the country is um, when we have advised on language, right, to say not just that you require partisan fairness, but we usually say that a map can't be drawn to intentionally or unduly favor either political party or individual, right? And so it gets at that idea that you can't just be like, I don't like this particular political enemy of mine, I'm going to draw him or her in or out of a district. Um, because it is it, it is a classic way um, to try to make a district, even if it looks like it might go for one party, actually go for the other party because there's no incumbent with name recognition, for example, there. 
So and another thing uh, uh, happened in Illinois is sort of the opposite. You keep them in the district, but move the district to a community that they don't really have a lot of name recognition, a lot of say in. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, their uh, representative still in the House, I believe, Adam Kinziger, uh, suburban, suburban power base, one there, sort of a Tea Party guy. Then they drew, redrew his district, so his house was still in there, but now he represented like really way far out west. I was going to say, it might be useful to um, give you the, the classic terms of gerrymandering. There is packing, cracking, stacking, and kidnapping. <laughs> so packing, you probably understand, right? Let's put so many people of a particular race or a particular party into a district that they have no influence anywhere else. Cracking is let's split this group in half and then they can't influence you know, either district. Stacking is a little bit like what you were talking about, right, where you make it look like a district is going to go one way, but we've actually included lots of non-voting people from that look like they're Democrats or look like they're Latinos or whatever, um, and so we know the district won't actually go that way. And then kidnapping is where, yeah, you basically <laughs> kidnap an incumbent, right? So you put them their house and their district number are the same, but the rest of the district is actually completely different to how it was before. Um, you know, and, and it's a little bit unclear how frustrated we should be by things like this in that I don't think that you know people who are elected I don't like when they call it you know my district um, I'm like you don't own the district right you are the representative from that district but you know if the district is different then you should try to represent the people who, who are in that different district at the same time you know if you're systematically targeting representatives from one party and not the other to try to make it hard for that side to get elected then that's you know pretty clearly something that is made to enhance unfairness. So um, how big, uh, if we could take this uh, momentarily globally, um, I mean, is this a problem in other countries? Is this a uniquely American problem? I mean, how do other countries do it? Well, I'm just laughing that you asked that question because it used to be a problem in other countries, but the rest of the world was like, this is really dumb, and changed their systems, right? So Australia, Canada, Ireland... Um, all developed independent commissions, and so they have sort of they make it less political and as boring as they can, right? Demographers and statisticians get together and redraw lines. One thing they do in Australia is rather than having the districts redrawn when the census happens in Australia, they do a census every five years. Instead of having everywhere redistrict all at the same time, so you can put a lot of focus and effort on it, they just do a change when the apportionment differences become big enough. So there's different states redistricting different bodies at different times. Um, and so it, it, again, you know, is more just sort of mundane. Um, and then there are other places that don't have this at all because they don't use geographic districts, right? If you use proportional representation, um, then, then there's no district lines. You're actually voting for parties. And then there are, of course, systems that are a little bit of voice, right? So somewhere like Germany has some districts, but then also whoever wins the popular vote gets a bonus amount. Um, of seats to try to make sure that they win control of the parliament. So here, you know, when we see that, again, I think it was 2012, more people voted for Democratic Congress members, yet Republicans, you know, had 20 or 30 more seats. Um, that wouldn't be the case if you had this pool of people that were elected essentially by popular vote. Um, and then you can have places go really extreme the other way, like Greece, where <laughs> they have the individual districts, but the top-up bonus is so huge that it dwarfs whatever happens in the district. <laughs> so the, the national vote is the only thing that matters. Um, so, yeah, there are lots of different ways to do it, lots of different ways to be unfair. Um, but certainly America is an outlier in using districts but not having a fair system to draw those districts. Now, um, can you or do you feel comfortable with your work speaking to party differences in this? 
it seems uh, from what I've read from other places, Illinois, uh, a couple other places, the Democrats really <clears throat> use this, uh, but a, a lot of it is sort of a Republican thing. Uh, you know, yeah, the, I'm happy to talk about this. So the, the, you need to look at this historically. In the 1980s, it was Democrats gerrymandering everywhere. There are lots of statements by Ronald Reagan complaining and complaining about gerrymandering and how it meant that he didn't have his Republican Congress and couldn't get things through, even though he had these popular ideas. You know, we moved to 2010, and many of the places had Republicans gerrymandering, and that meant that initially Obama, you know, couldn't get things through because he had this Republican Congress. Um, so even though, so that's the moment. And now we're looking at reforms just today um, or this week in Virginia. Um, you know, we have the Democrats opposing redistricting reform because they know they have the chance to essentially gerrymander in 2021 because they have unified control. As a reminder, this was recorded on March 6th. The Virginia House of Delegates voted 54 to 46 to create an independent commission to handle remaps. Nine House Democrats joined with 45 Republicans to approve the measure. So even though which party has more power changes, the fact that politicians love gerrymandering to look after themselves never seems to change. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, Carl Rove made sort of a big splash with uh, talking about Project Red Map. Uh, big effort. Uh, you know, he wrote some op-ed, uh, want to say Wall Street Journal, try to get some um, <clears throat> efforts towards Republicans spending money more on local races so they can get the legislatures that will make the the maps. Um, is in your opinion, in your professional opinion, is this something that worked? Was this a lot of sound and fury? Uh, what w w was that a real thing, or was that sort of a PR blitz? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it is true that there was a program called Red Map Redistricting Majority Project, um, and it is true that there was this effort to get people elected at. It was actually at the state legislative level because state legislatures draw the lines for both Congress and state legislatures largely. Now we're getting more commissions. Um, but it's also unclear whether it was this project that managed to get lots of state legislatures to be Republican or, or states to have unified Republican control after 2010, or if it was like the Tea Party wave and a backlash against President Obama. So whatever reason it was, you did end up with lots of unified Republican control. The other thing, though, that Red Map had, and the Democrats had something equivalent, um, was you have these sort of central um, uh, repositories of information and data so that you can assess any plan to know exactly its partisan, its likely partisan outcome for the next, you know, next two years, next four, six, eight years, um, because the plans last for 10 years. Um, and so I, my guess is that both sides are as sophisticated as each other. In fact, um, the, the sort of nice thing is that the technology has become um, sufficiently available that I hope that it's not just the parties that have access to all of you know, these data for 2021. I, I am working with various people to try to make it publicly available. So we have this website called planscore.org uh, where you can go and we try to make it so all 50 states, you can throw in any map that's proposed or that you draw and actually see its likely partisan outcome. Um, there are also a whole bunch of other online um, services that are being developed so you can look at different types of maps. You can select you know, sliders. Do you want to have more of this type of map or more compactness or less or various other things um, and actually see the consequences for the map. So my hope is that the 2010s will be the last round where it was very much behind closed doors um, and now we'll be able to shine more of a light on what's going on. Because we do have a census coming up. So what's, uh, what are your hopes? fears, worries, you know, about this? 
Oh, about the census? Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, so first up, obviously, there was that whole effort to try to get a citizenship question on the census, which is not being asked, and everybody should know it's not being asked. The government will not be collecting that data from every single person, um, and that is due to some wonderful litigation. Um, so the hope that, but, but the fact that it, people even thought that there might be a question, was go, there's a worry that that would drive down turnout, right? And so as soon as people don't um, answer the census, uh, you start to have to, the Census Bureau essentially has to estimate how many people are not answering and where they are, and you tend to end up with undercounts of people of colour. You often end up with undercounts of people in urban versus rural areas. Um, and so the one thing is we hope that everybody in, in April, it's sort of ridiculous that it's April Fool's Day is Census Day, but there it is, um, you know, that everybody completes the census so we have a good sense of where people are. Um, but then there's other weird things, right? So the census has this differential privacy math algorithm that it's applying that essentially seems to put more people in rural areas than urban areas, which could have effect, you know, consequences for funding um, as well as for the, the drawing of districts. Um, and then there's just the fact that the parties will have access to commercial data as well as census data, right? So you, your Cambridge Analyticas of the world are able to tell you, you know, what somebody reads, eats, sleeps, where they go on holidays and so on, and you can predict their um, part. Wait, wait, camp. what now? I wasn't aware of this last part. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. so, um, so if you're trying to work out, if you're trying to do a good gerrymander, you, you need two things in particular. So you need information about people, but then you also need people to be predictable in their partisanship. And so because we've seen more polarization and people kind of stick with their party more than they used to, that makes it easier to gerrymander if you can just know which way they're likely to vote. So then what you need is not just, well, here's you know, the times that they voted and here's their sort of demographic information, but what if you knew what newspapers they read, what websites they visit, what product they buy. Um, and so those sort of big data tools that commercial groups have mean you can even more accurately predict how people in various census blocks will vote. And, um, so and they're going to allow the Census Bureau to use this? Not the Census Bureau. No, no, no. no. Okay. This will just be the parties. <laughs> oh, no. okay. Yeah, no. The Census Bureau will just be asking its regular 10 questions and um, releasing that information, hopefully in a fair way. Okay. So, um, all right, so we covered a lot of territory here. Just a couple more, just to give you a sense of time, a couple more questions. First mm -hmm. one's sort of silly. Um, <clears throat> I'm currently editing the first episode which involves uh, a little bit of the Australian ballot back in the 1800s, the first secret ballot. So uh, why do you get, why are you guys good at this and why do we suck at this? I like don't know, what? Maybe, it's the, uh, maybe it's the convict roots, you know, we come from a, a, a people full of, full of nous and enterprise <laughs> ready to uh, get around the rules to survive. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm happy that at least one country has got it largely worked out. <laughs> yeah, our heritage is more people seeking greater persecution than was available in England at the time. <laughs> um, and then second question, um, sort of a broader question. I mean, what are the, what are some of the big problems with the, you know, just and speaking either from your immigrant experience or your expertise or just you as a person. I mean, what are some of the big, large systemic problems with American elections? Uh, I'm thinking things like gerrymandering, like electoral college. I'm not trying to put your words in your mouth here. I'm just sort of yeah. thinking of the big things that people, that friends of mine from other countries, I try and tell them about and they're like, what? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a big one is, um, you know, gerrymandering, which has huge distortions on who represents us. We end up having a, a real misalignment between where voters are and where 
legislators are, but other things cause that as well, right? So voter suppression tactics, which have been ramping up, frankly, in the last you know, 10, 15 years, um, uh, mean that you don't get people who want to vote. Not everybody who wants to vote is able to vote, and so that distorts the electorate. Um, also, money in politics. You know, We just see so much um, money in the political system in America, and if we were able to get that out, we might see uh, less corruption. I mean, Illinois knows all about corruption. Um, so that's a problem. I guess ethical rules as well. You know, we have um, a president that doesn't feel that he needs to obey ethical rules, so that's problematic. Um, and then I guess the other thing that comes up a little bit more for America than maybe other countries is foreign interference. Um, there's a really interesting book called Birth by Peter Harris. He was the person who ran the first South African fair election in 1994, um, and they actually got hacked by, I think it was foreigners. Um, and anyway, the, the book is really interesting. It talks with how they, how they dealt with that. Um, but um, aside from that, I think one of the reasons that, you know, like I voted online in Australia in like 2011 or something, one of the last times I could vote back there, um, and no one was trying to hack in and change, you know, the results of my state election as far as I know. Um, whereas, you know, what happens in America really affects the rest of the world and it makes it more of a target for foreign interference. Um, and so that, that, that is something that seems to me to be uniquely American and, and hard to deal with. Although that is hard to deal with. Campaign finance, redistricting, voter suppression, those things are not hard to deal with. We could change the laws and just fix things. It's just um, we haven't. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and we won't as long as um, you know, we keep letting self-interested politicians make the decisions. Well, Ruth Greenwood, thank you for your, for your time. Thank you. Great to be with you. Next week on the Chicago Corruption Walking Tour. I suppose you boys are laughing at me, but I saw that elevator out of woo. Man, we're not laughing at you. This is what we're paid for to answer every call. Most of them don't amount to much, but you can never tell when it's for real. <laughs>